Luck on Sunday, proudly sponsored by Albasti Ecruel Dubai. Welcome to the Luck on Sunday podcast, a weekly audio digest of all the best bits of Luck on Sunday, free to air every Sunday from nine o'clock that brings you the best guests and insight from around the racing world. And our first guest is a big runner as well, in every sense. Once again, as he did with Sky Ace, he's turned base metal into gold with this horse, Hewick, with a holy trinity of victories that culminated in an extraordinary day in New Jersey last time. He is Shark Hanlon. He will be on this sofa very shortly. Coming to us via the digital airwaves will be the man who enjoyed what you could argue was his most significant day as a trainer yesterday in company with his brother Harry, Dan Skelton, guided Protectorat to success in the Betfair chase in which Aplutar was a bitter disappointment. New governance structure finally announced this week by the BHA. Julie Harrington will whip in and whip out with all the news and significant developments that have happened this week. Kevin Stott has made a big move. He's moved south and he has widened his portfolio of trainers that he's riding for with the assistance of his partner and now agent, TV presenter Megan Nichols. They will both be joining me on the Luck on Sunday sofa. As will a man who has changed the face of every endeavour that he's been involved with, whether it be football anywhere in the world, from South America through the United States to Europe, and now to horse racing, where it's not just as an owner he is seeking to dominate, but as a metaverse pioneer. Kia Jarabjan is live at 10.30. Horse walks into a bar, asks for a pint of Guinness, causes absolute chaos. Shark Hanlon is my first guest today. The exploits of Hewick have gone viral around the world. But we want to concentrate more on what this horse has done rather than what he's drunk. Shark, good morning. <laughs> morning, how are you? Well, let's get, let's get that done with first. You've had to do a bit of firefighting this week. For those who, who haven't been following this story, after the great win in the American Grand National at Firehills in New Jersey, you walked your great horse, Hewick, into your local and he had a pint of Guinness. Little did you know that this would cause a furore of sorts. We can, we can enjoy it again here on Racing TV. Now, how have, you, how have you managed to play this up and down over the last few weeks? Listen, there's, there's a lot of people loved it. There's a few people there, eight or ten people that give out about it. And um, we won't talk about them people. Listen, them people are people that probably never worked a day in their life and uh, they have no interest in horses, they just want to be there to give out about something. But we had 7,000, 700,000 views, my young lad does the social media for me at home, 
and we had 700,000 views that loved it so they're the people we'll talk about Is this your son Paddy who does Sean Sean, Sean does, Sean Sean does, does, the, does the social media Yeah if it was left to me I couldn't turn it on but um, he does all the social media for me at home so and he's doing a great job and he's keeping people updated with everything so and I think it's very important now in this day and age to have that going ahead And was most of the traffic you got from that quite quite positive quite charmed by that It was unreal um, we had we had over 700,000 views. Now, that's a lot of people, mm. and they were all, all good views. So there was a few people that knocked it, just, just the horse shouldn't have went into the pub and things like this. Listen, if I felt any danger, the horse wouldn't have been in the pub, but he's just a real relaxed horse. And uh, for my own location at home, it was brilliant for it to be there. And how is he now, Hewick, after what's been a, a busy but incredibly successful campaign taking in um, Galway after Sandown, of course, and then a wonderful race where he came down at the last, but he effectively won the race at the Stole, and then to America. Is, is he in great shape? He is in great shape. I said we didn't bring him home for about 10 days from America, and it was brilliant because it was 25, 30 degrees over there, and I decided to leave him over there, let him get his son on his back, get himself fully recovered and um, he was came home brilliant so he did as a matter of fact he came home heavier than he went and he gone you know so like um, it was great we had someone to leave him over there and everything and we um, we enjoyed it, the whole thing over there so we did and the horse enjoyed it so he did he never turned the hair um, after this stall we didn't do much with him I gave him a week off after this stall and the plan was to go to America, win, lose or draw mm. in this stall he was going to America because it was a thing I had in our head for the last couple of years. It was great to have a horse to do what he'd done. And um, just, it was a dream come true there when you see him jumping the second last and he taking it up and John Gainford was absolutely brilliant on him. And the only place that he wiggled around a bit was at the last. But it's a funny, it's a funny fence because you pass on the inside of that fence twice and when the horse came around the bend, watch him coming around the bend there now, when he came around the bend, he, he was usually going on the inside of the fence, the next thing he had to veer out, and just the horse himself, he's a very clever horse, and he thought he should have been going on the inside, and that was the only little wibble that he gave, but listen, it was great to go over there and do it, and um, in fairness, England, Ireland, what sport we had behind us. You see, there's the they passed on yeah. the inside of that twice. Just be and careful when you run him in the Grand National, he doesn't try and jump the chair twice. Maybe, <laughs> if he's that clever. <laughs> but um, the sport we're after getting um, from everywhere. I was over at the sales last week, and all the English people were coming up to congratulate me. I, I didn't, I, I couldn't believe we had so much sport over there. We had more requests for us to show this race the next morning than we've ever had for any race before on this program. People saying, please, 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 can we see the Shark winning the, uh, winning the American Grand National? It's great. Listen, um, it's great. People are great. People are great. And that's what racing is about. Um, we're, we're after having downturns and upturns. Everyone does. And in racing, you get them as well. But this is a good story, and that's what people want to hear. I know that we're going to talk about this much more, much later in the show, but I need to ask you, this is a perfect example of a horse being enterprisingly campaigned. You've run him plenty. I yeah. know he was a cheap horse, but he's a very precious horse to you now. Yeah. You've run him plenty on what we would consider to be quickish ground, but he's a horse with Welsh Grand National winners and four-mile chasers in his pedigree. It's not like he's bred to be a flat horse. Why can you do that with him and know that that's okay, and yet these... 
people up the top of the Trainers' Championship, both sides of the Irish Sea, are afraid to run a horse on what's called good ground at one of our premier tracks? I think um, with this horse anyway is that I know he needs good ground, mm -hmm. right? And But he's not a big horse. He's only 16 and a half. And um, it's easier to keep a smaller horse sound. None of us wants to break down a horse. So that's the last thing in the world any trainer wants to do to want to hurt a horse. That's, that's, the, like, that's the first thing is in a, horse, a trainer's mind. They don't want to hurt their, hurt, hurt their horse. But this horse, it's a handy bit of a horse. And he, he wasn't a pint-to-pint horse. He went there once or twice and fell, right? But um, he's a kind of a horse that when he needs good ground, and you can run a small horse more often on good ground than a big horse. Mm -hmm. And that's because they're putting less pressure on their... Less pressure on, on their, their legs, on their, their tendons. On their yeah. tendons, yeah. yeah. And, like... At the moment, there's probably a lot about Ascot Jester and that. But, like, the trainer knows his horse. Mm -hmm. And when you know your horse and you decide the night before, because whoever, whatever trainer it is, they don't sleep the night before if they think the ground is going to be too quick for the horse. I know, because I don't. And my, my horses wouldn't be in the same class as their horses, right? But... um they won't, they won't sleep well the night before. They'll be thinking about this. So it's not something that they're going to do on the morn. There's a bit of thought after going mm -hmm. into it. So you wouldn't consider yourself intrinsically more of a risk taker? You're not someone who rolls the dice more than I, your neighbour down the road, Willie Mullins, or your neighbour the other way? I, I'm, with this horse, it's different because he's not a big horse and he needs good ground. Mm -hmm. So... Um, Probably he, he could have been an ascot jester, you know, like that, that kind of thing. But we decided early in the year, we done out a plan early in the year for my horse, and I stuck with it. Now the next plan is you go to the Gold Cup. Nothing between now and the Gold Cup. No, listen, he deserves a break. He, um, he's after um, having a great season, and he deserves a break. So he came back from America. When he came back from America, uh, TJ took him back up to Nace. And he's out today and in at night, and he's been mined like a baby up there. So he is. So and they're very good. He's and the brother are very good to look after him when when they're on holidays. And I just feel that he deserves eight weeks off now. And that's we'll say first of January, mm. right? And if I have to give him a run, I'm going to have to be hard on him um, to get a run into him in eight weeks after. So. Um, he come now he's a horse that don't he's a very bad crib biter right and um they nearly keep herself even when he's out in the field he could take the top of a stake and crib bite it but he's happy doing it and i never tried to stop him um some trainers there they'd be putting yokes on their neck all bull you know like a horse is happy doing it. What to do in their own time is their own business. So it's a nervous affliction. It's like somebody biting their nails yes. all the time compulsively. Yeah. So a horse yeah. just chewing and chewing and chewing against any surface, any bit of wood. Yeah, but like we have him there, and my young lad now, Paddy, he, he looks after him a lot. Is, of do you time. think that's why you got him so cheap in the first place? Because um, people couldn't sell him because he was a crib biter. No, I don't think it was mentioned on the day. <laughs> Funny that. You know, and yeah. just the reason I got him so cheap, which was probably in our own local. Like I'm only five minutes from the sales company and um, I'd say that um, on the day the trade wasn't good and I got to buy him cheap. I would never have bought him. I went down to buy another horse at the time. I went down to buy him another horse at the time 
and um, the other horse wasn't there. And I was walking out to Bottle Gate, coming home, and I met him coming in, and it just something caught me eye. And went home, got the dinner, half hours during the dinner, got up, left, went back and um, went back to buy the horse. And I didn't even know what he was by. I didn't know what. I knew nothing about him. I just liked the, what I saw. And at, at 800 quid, it, it's... It, it eight, eight? Yeah. yeah. Eight, yeah. Uh, it, I suppose it doesn't matter too much. As long as you like the model, you know you can do something yeah. with it. Is this your stockman's background that informs that? Because you are from a family of, 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 of farmers, of, of, of dairy I, farmers. I, no, I dealt... I was a cattle dealer. Dealer, my, yeah. my grandfather was a cattle dealer. My father was a cattle dealer. And um, you know what a good animal's supposed to look like, right? Yeah, well, hopefully <laughs> it's working anyway. It's working. Um, they say that if you can judge a bullock, you can judge a horse. I don't is it, know. Is it true? I don't know. It's working though. Welcome back. The shark is still with us. John Shark Hanlon still with us. The master trainer of Hewick. He's flanked by uh, newsboy David Yates from the Daily Mirror and uh, ITV and Racing TV's Megan Nichols, also acting as agent manager to her partner, Kevin Stott, who will be joining us on the show a little bit later on. Uh, and Megan, your champion trainer, Father Paul, has already been in touch this morning about his runners from Ascot yesterday. Yeah, um, I try to always sort of speak to Dad after the weekend and, you know, I like to know how the horses are and say well done normally after a, a hopefully good weekend and um, we had a brilliant weekend obviously and, and he said that all horses from Friday, Saturday, Ascot and Haydock are all absolutely fine, A1, thankfully none of the horses are jarred up or, um, or none the worse, they're all fresh and well so that's really good news. Now he is someone who tends to roll the dice a bit more than other trainers, would you agree? Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, it's no secret that a lot of Dad's horses do prefer a sounder surface anyway. Um, you know, we love the fact in the spring when we get the better ground. Aintree, for example, he's hoping that it's it's that lovely spring ground, and we normally do exceptionally well. But Dad is never afraid is. to run them. Is it something to do with the way he trains? You think, or the surface he trains on? Possibly or? the surface. I think has probably got a lot to do with it. You know, we've got amazing gallops and um, amazing surfaces, uh, Martin Collins surfaces that are exceptional, and even the horses that come from France that run in sort of bottomless ground and, and win their once or twice over hurdles before they, they get purchased and come to us, they end up wanting nice ground. And I think they take a bit of time to adapt. And, um, yeah, I think the surfaces probably have a lot to do with it. This is quite interesting, Shark, because I was going get to get to this with you. When we talk about ground preference with, with horses, are we actually talking just as much about what they've become accustomed to as we are to something that's inherent in their makeup that makes them want soft or fast ground? Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, well, um, is it like, nurture? Is it nurture rather than nature? It is, I suppose. But like, I, I see Willie Mullins' gallop at home now. It's heavy, heavy, mm. heavy, heavy. That's right? kind of what I'm getting at. And um, he's he's horses that probably want to cut in the ground, but he'll run them. You know, if, I guarantee you go to Cheltenham, Willie won't be taking out a horse. Mm. You know, if he goes over there with thirty horses, they're going over to run. You know, so like, um, I suppose the surface uh, at home. Is, is a big help, so it is. But I don't think it's all in all because um, Willie is a prime example because his gallop is heavy and um, he goes to Cheltenham and wins the latter races. Yeah, exactly. And I suppose, Dave Yates, that at the end of the season, trainers are quite happy to take the risk, is putting it quite controversially, but they're quite happy to run if the ground is quick. They're not happy to run at this time of the year. Should they be drawing that distinction? Well, I think that distinction was, that distinction point, was drawn it? yesterday, mm. and ethically, it's inescapable, isn't it? 
that, you know, I'm happy to risk a horse's tendon in March, but I'm not happy to risk one in November. Yeah, no, that's a that's a very fair point. What are, before, can I just rejoin the, or that discussion? Yeah. To, to what extent does it? Uh, certain trainers buy certain types of horses. Yeah. Is that not true? Yeah. That yeah as an individual, you think yeah. I, I I buy a certain make and shape of horse. Gen not not yes. exclusively, but generally. Yes. So that must have something to like. There are some trainers that we associate, and I'm going to. I'm going to pluck one out of the air, Venetia Williams, right? Yes. Who obviously didn't run L'Empresse yesterday. Yeah. But we would associate her with a lot of... She's had a lot of good, soft ground mm -hmm. horses over the winters, yes. right? So will there not be a, a, a higher preponderance of uh, a certain type of trainer withdrawing horses on ground that's drying out? Yeah, yeah well, the, the, like, a lot of the... Good horses are coming from the pint to pint fields in in Ireland, right? And like the pint to pint lads in Ireland, they won't run a horse on goodish ground because they said that they can't get them sold, right? So they're waiting for the ground to get soft to run their horse, right? And then they go to the sales and they're making big bucks, right? And just something that I I find it hard to figure out myself is that like. The pint of pints in Ireland on heavy ground, right? And then they go to Cheltenham or go to wherever on good ground. There is probably that bigger chance of a horse breaking down, you know. Can I just say that one, when you said about risking the tendons, I think we've got to be so careful with that mm. because Dad ran however many horses over the weekend. He didn't run them thinking, oh, well, I'm just risking if they break down. That exactly. is not no. what he did. Exactly. No. And that, that's exactly my point. But when not. people say, I'm not going to risk a horse at this time of year when I the ground is good, does it mean they're happy to risk a horse getting an injury in March? I understand totally what you mean. But what I think is, you know, for example, let's just use Constitution Hill as an example. You know, Nicky has been saying for the last week or so that he's not going to risk him if the ground dries up too much. Now, he's not hes not going to want the horse to... I'm not sure... I don't think he's running him or if he ran him thinking, oh, he's definitely going to have a tendon problem, he's going to have broken down, we're off for a year. Yeah. He doesn't want him to be jarred up, therefore set back for the rest of the year, miss another prep run. Mm -hmm. He's... Yeah, ultimately, his aim is going to be Cheltenham, don't get me wrong, but I don't think it's because... Ooh, we're risking breaking down. I think it's more the setback. If they are a bit jarred up, if they do come back a bit sore okay. or whatever, and then it takes longer for them to come back for their next one. Understood. Just, just one very quick thing. A, a plea to all practitioners, trainers, jockeys, owners. L let's not confuse not suited by to a threat to, right? If you think that this ground is unsuitable for your horse, do not invoke equine welfare, welfare. Yeah. because yeah. because if you do that it gives people do it because it, they think that it gives them a total pass that if they say well i i said you know that it, it's not safe the horse let's let's really try and 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 not stray into that if you think in my opinion this will not suit the horse so we've decided not to run say today say that do not invoke equine welfare that in some way this ground is dangerous yeah. it's really important for racing's opponents who look into the sport and say exactly oh they you know they'll risk the uh, the bad ones on this ground yeah, yeah. but not the mm. good ones it's really important to get that distinction in and get it nailed down but you see this time of the year too like yesterday for instance the drying yesterday in november was unreal mm. do you know 
if we had a rain yesterday morning at, at 8 o'clock and you hadn't declared your horse, you'd be saying, I'm bloody Egypt now. I should have had, <laughs> I have had me, me horse declared here, mm. right? And we're after getting the rain, which can happen at this time of the year. The weather can change so quick. Like, Nick, yes, he, he decided not to run the horse. If, he, if, he had, if it hadn't to be as good a drying day, if a, a scrib of a shower had to come, he probably would have ran him. So, like, you have to take all these things in. Cause, like, the trainer is trying to mine his horse. Mm. So he's, he's saying, right, OK, if I run him today and he get a little bit jarred, right, I can't run him at Christmas, right? So um, why will I run him today? And there's still an opportunity. We're going into the winter. We're not coming out of it, yeah. right? And that's, that's the other point that all them trainers have. I get it. I do get it. Let's bring Dan Skelton into, into the conversation because he was the hero of the day yesterday together with his brother Harry. They won the Betfair chase at Haydock Park, the grade one with Protectorat. Aplutar, the Gold Cup winner, running no kind of race, but Protectorat still dominant over a, a good field. Dan, good morning. Good morning. Um, you've probably been listening with... With no little interest, I, I shouldn't wonder. And I'll come to your great day in, in a few moments' time. But I can't, I can't start with anything else but getting your thoughts on what Megan Shark and, and Dave have just been discussing. I actually think it's. Um, I think there's a lot of sense in talk, and I think you actually have to get away from the arena and, and talk about this, perhaps on a Sunday morning on a sofa, because you know temperatures are, are up and. You know, three Cheltenham Festival winners aren't running at Ascot yesterday and crowds are disappointed, etc. So it's going to be quite... Any response yesterday, I think, is going to be quite emotive. Um, I think what Dave says is absolutely vital. There is a clear distinction between welfare and suitability. Um, and yesterday was certainly suitability. Um, and at the end of the day, ground is an opinion. Everyone's entitled to that, uh, to that opinion. Um, and people just have to get on with it. You know, if you want to run, run. If you don't want to run, don't. Um, but I think that the problem is, is you had three horses there yesterday that everybody was so much looking forward to. There'd been sort of like in Constitution Hill's um, case, there'd been months of build up to this horse running. Uh, the other two, there'd obviously been a sort of a 10 day build up to them running. You're asking the trainers, the press are asking the trainers, are they running? Will they be there? Can we do a sort of a preview on this? And we want to build this up. Um, and as professionals in the sport, we're sort of bound to, you know, sort of give our opinion and, and say what we, you know, say the best that we can and, and, and sort of predict the future a little bit. And then the ground lets you down, the weather lets you down, like Shark says. It, it's a, it's a, you're stuck between a rock and a hard place sometimes as a professional. Um, I understand that we have to sort of sell the sport and everything else, but you know, I know that Nicky would have known two weeks out um, that that ground was going to be borderline for Constitution Hill, but he's got swept up in the um, in the build-up and we're going and, you know, then you have to make that last-minute decision and everyone feels deflated. Well, if he'd have just turned up on the day, Constitution's had maybe running, maybe not running, people would have been more understanding, perhaps, of the situation. But it's... This isn't going to be a long-standing problem with racing going forward into the winter. It is raining more. You're not going to get this happening quite so much. It's unique circumstances. Perhaps we've just got to be a little bit prepared next October and early November. If this is what British weather is going to be from now on, we've all got to perhaps be a little bit more understanding of what to expect or what we can be asked to expect um, at, at this time of year. 
Well, does that mean then that given what trainers have now decided they will and won't do, and I'm not talking about welfare, I am talking about suitability, if there is a broad base of the equine population that wants to run in October and November who simply won't countenance the idea of ground that is described as good in 2022, 2023, then do the clerks of the course simply hold their hands up and say, we're just going to water the hell out of this and make it like Otoy every time we run? No, I don't. I don't think that's, I think that's right. We're dealing with British weather. Um, and, you know, it's patchy. Everybody's got a job to do. And the Clarks, of course, is, have worked probably as hard as they've ever worked, um, along with their ground staff team. Every place has had, a, you know, has had a hard job this autumn. I mean, just look at market raising the other day. Yeah, <laughs> no rain, no rain, no rain. Have it all in one day. It's like a lake. I mean, it's abandoned, you, yeah. Exactly. You're damned, sometimes you're damned if you do, you're damned if you don't. Everybody just has to be a little bit more understanding. Um, and, you know, I don't want to get down the, the road of all roads pointing to Cheltenham, but, you know, those horses, you know, when, when you're sort of saying, well, we'll run them in March on that type of ground, that's, you know, that, that meeting's built up to be this great big thing. And, you know, you, you've got to get there. And, you know, there's almost this thing nowadays, you've got to get there, you've got to get there undefeated. Um, otherwise, you haven't got a chance. And that's not the real world, you, you know. Horses can get beat. They, they they can suffer setbacks and come back from it. Um, in Shark's horse there, um, Hewick, he, he started last year winning round uh, uh, Sedgefield. Um, you know, and, and cost cost less than most than a lot of people's holidays. <laughs> like, you know, it, 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 horses can come from all sorts of different different places, and it's not, you know, it, it, it's it's a hard thing to do to just to just keep these horses undefeated and keep them under wraps and everything else. But you do sometimes feel the pressure to do so. And I can understand the bigger profile horse you have, the more pressure you'd have to keep it undefeated. Don't know where you go on holiday, Dan, but I'd like to come along. I know, mate. If invited. Can, I, can you find me it. that holiday for five for 800 quid, please? I'm there. Um, Dan is a horse, a horse trainer. He don't get a chance. He don't get a chance to go on holidays. <laughs> right. Yesterday... Tell me why, tell me why. You've had some great moments. You've had a bucket load of Cheltenham Festival winners already. You've had some really, really special moments. You've delivered your brother a jockey's championship. Um, the the re reaction with which you greeted one another yesterday was really striking. I, I felt myself welling up. Just tell me why for the pair of you yesterday was such a big deal. Uh, because that's, that's, you know, that's one of the grails of three-mile steeplechase. And you know, that's one of the biggies. Um, you know, if if we had classics in jumps racing, that would perhaps be one of them. You know, it's sort of one of the three mile majors. Um, and it's a horse that, you know, didn't arrive in perfect, you know, in perfect condition. And, you know, the, the, the finished article and, you know, he unseated on his first ever start at Cheltenham. And we've had to build and work at this horse. The whole team have. Um, and it was just a, a very satisfying moment to get the horse to the top of his game to win the big race, you know, to jump and travel the way he did. We had him really ready. Um, and, you know, there's, you don't get, you know, some, you don't get these horses very often, these, these top, top class horses. I mean, if you watch him on the way around, he puts in some jumps that, you know, grade, you know, non-grade one horses can't do. Um, and it makes you realize you know, I think we both realised, both me and Harry yesterday, realised just how, you know, just how special it was and how good this horse is and how 
rare they are. Um, so for it all to come together was very, very special. Uh, we worked very hard at it. I'm not saying anybody else doesn't, of course they do. Um, and like I said, sometimes you can get wrapped up in you, you can get wrapped up in the game overall and move on too quickly. You know, we both sort of come to the conclusion at the start of this season we've got some fabulous horses here. Let's not miss let's not miss the good days when they happen. Let's appreciate them. Let's not be in too much of a hurry to move forward straight away. We're always looking forward. If you're not looking forward, you're going backwards. But you don't just have to all of a sudden jump on the next bus. And you know, yesterday was just a case of us taking it all in and really just really enjoying what we what we set out to do. Um, it's just magic. Some wonderful pictures there of the, the ownership group as well. Jed Mason, Sir Alex Ferguson celebrating after the after the race. John Hales, with whom your family's been associated so closely for such a long time. And yeah, these are these are wonderful scenes. Um, can they be can they be replicated at Chelm in March with this horse, do you think? Absolutely they can. Um, you know, I felt coming into the race yesterday that he was a horse that was entitled to improve. Um, and like I said, don't make any mistakes. We hadn't sort of left 5% in the locker and thinking, well, you know, we're just training for the rest of the year. Absolutely not. We, we, we knew that yesterday was going to be a hard race. We knew it was going to be a tough race. And, you know, unfortunately, a Plutard didn't turn up in his, you know, on his, on, with his A game. Of course he didn't. But, you know, we prepared as if he was going to. Um, and that fight will no doubt materialize down the line. Um, you know, one, one ordinary run doesn't make a bad horse and he, he will definitely be back. But we knew what we were taking on yesterday and I hoped he'd improved over the summer because he's got an age where he can. He's only ever had three goes at the trip going into yesterday and one of those didn't count when I ran him too quick at Aintree. Um, but so that goes back to my earlier point. He, he ran a very disappointing race at Aintree, never went a yard, finished fourth. Um, but he's bounced back. You know, these good horses, they can bounce back. You don't have to be too afraid of not running them. And I was never, uh, I was never afraid of getting stuck in this year, Aplutard or not, on the first occasion. If we got beat, we got beat. We moved on. Um, you know, but it, it just, that was the way it worked out for us. And I, I think he, you know, three mile, two round Cheltenham, we've proven that's not an issue. Um, you know, there's a, there's, there's a new statistic in town that you can win your, can win a gold cup if you if you don't win it on your first go after Aplutard and Native River have done it because obviously before those two there wasn't a horse for years that didn't win it if it wasn't its first go so I'm glad that statistics sort of old news now so we'll we'll go and we'll, we'll go and give it our best shot. Dan, congratulations! Thanks so much. Cheers. Dan Skelton, trader of Protector, out the winner of yesterday's um, Bedford Chase Gold Cup winner, possibly Protector or not. I think he's one in the making. I mean, he'd have been closer in the Gold Cup last year if he hadn't have made a slight mistake at the last. And um, don't get me wrong, Plutard absolutely bombed. bolted up, didn't he? Mm. Oh, sorry, uh, at Cheltenham yeah. he bolted up. Yes, he bombed. But, you know, he, he'd have been nearly second if he hadn't have missed the last last year. Maybe he has improved over the summer. If he has a good campaign going going into it, then I think he's definitely got a chance shark Aplutar ran so badly uh yeah was he yeah. to your eye was he always going badly yeah he didn't look to be Rachel didn't look to be comfortable on him for a long ways out and um listen he had an off day and that's it like we know he's an awful lot better than that we know what he can do and I'm sure again Cheltenham comes in March that 
and he'll have this horse a hundred and ten percent, and he's going. He'll go back for his crown. I suppose the disappointing thing is, David, that he's a horse who doesn't really run clunkers. He runs the odd one that's a bit below his brilliant best. Yeah. But even his even his worst has normally been better than most people's best. Absolutely, he's been a really consistent horse. I mean, the, the thing with that yesterday was that I, I just felt from you know the the first three or four fences he just didn't jump with his normal fluency and I was watching him I, I was watching him the whole way around and I just thought well th th this horse just isn't when they sit at the back and they're on the bridle but they're not jumping you know what what defines great steeplechasers three mile chasers as with two well in of, of any distance is their ability to jump isn't it yeah. that's what yeah. that's what marks that's the, 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 the the really great ones out yeah. and he just wasn't anything like that was yeah. he from from the first fence onwards tell you who could be a good horse is uh, is hitman who runs in the same colors as protector and is trained by paul nichols let's take a look at him making short work of a, a pretty reasonable field in the graduation chase now megan paul said earlier in the week i'd have quite liked to have slid him into the betfair chase but i couldn't because of the the ownership do you think he could have beaten Protector out in that? Oof, I mean, that's impossible to say, isn't it? I mean, you know, if he keeps progressing, then hopefully that is a, a name you can have for the start of next season. I mean, how can you say he could have beaten Protector out? Protector out no. was very impressive. And, you know, Hitman hasn't come off the bridle here, but totally different conditions. And this horse is still a work in progress. You know, he's only a young horse still. People forget he's only six. I think he feels like he's been around for a lot longer than that. Um, his work rider, actually, Natalie Parker, who's ridden him from the start, she's done a great job with him. He's much more settled now, and since he's relaxed, she's been convinced that he needs a trip. Mm -hmm. And obviously, Dad's taken his time to step him up because he's been keen and probably wouldn't have allowed himself to stay, but he's a lot more relaxed now. The King George, all being well, his next start will be a, you know, another stage in hopefully the right direction, and um, you know, he's still a work in progress. Is he the best horse in your dad's yard? No, at this stage, I don't think he is. Could he be one day? Maybe. But at this stage today, is he the best horse in the yard? No, I don't Who think do he is. Who do you think the best horse in the yard is? Well, if you take away, obviously, Klander Zobo, who's, who's you know, had a bit of a setback, then I think that Brave Man's Game could be. I think, I think Hitman is. How much on the King George? On the King George? Yeah. Hitman versus Brave Man's yeah. Game, if they both run? Yeah. Well, now you're doing that. I'm all over Brave Man's <laughs> Now you're nervous. Now you're nervous. Now you're See, nervous. I got there in the end. Okay. It was out. a cunning plan. What do you think, Shark? She's after telling us everything. She told us everything. Brave Man's Game is a certainty now, isn't no, it? No, oh, he's a good no, thing. No, he's no, a good no, thing. No, no, no. David, you David, said David, he was yeah, the bring, best in the yard. Bring some clarity to proceedings. Well, I would have said Brave Man's Game. I mean, Hitman, for all those defeats over fences they've been admirable efforts at the top level quite a few of them haven't they and obviously that it was a personal best on his return in defeating the uh, the old roan chase and I would have thought on the figures that would be another one yesterday so as Megan said it's when you said it's hard to believe he is I thought yeah god how old is that horse because he does seem to have been around for quite a while and of course he's only six he's only six and he does a lot of improvement still uh, maybe in a year's time, if you ask Megan that, she might have a different answer for you. I'm pretty convinced you're going to have a different answer. You, you are the ultimate politician. See, it runs <laughs> in the family. <laughs>
Yeah, um, I'm slightly, um, slightly worried about going on a caravan holiday with Charles <laughs> and Walsh now. Are, are, you, um, are you trying to take us to Loch Ness, but the racecourses are just going to insist that you insist that you you end up in Cromer every time <laughs> look I, I think the, the the whole aim is that through the commercial committee um, we can listen to all of the breadth of views from the race courses and and the different groups within that whether they're small independents the jockey club arena the large independents um, and we can also listen to um, the the participants as well and and make sure that we're presenting the board with a with a balanced view so they can decide um, if it's Cromer or Loch Ness. I've been sent a message this morning by a, an experienced and senior figure in the industry, and I'll read it word for word. Hi, Nick, hope you're well. I wondered if you might be able to ask Julie about the drain of talent leaving the UK. We've, we've talked about this plenty. Yeah, absolutely. He said, but no one's mentioned the people, none, absolutely zero of the top jockeys and top apprentices who will be not riding here this winter. Uh, Sylvester Souza, Harry Bentley have chosen to leave for good. Young trainers are also choosing other countries. Matt Kumani, Annabelle Nisham, David Eustace are all in Australia. Others are choosing France or the USA. This is all on top of the exodus of the horses that have left here in droves at the horses in training sale. Um, in my opinion, the BHA is sleepwalking into a complete breakdown of the system as we have it at the moment. Serious and radical change is needed now. Is the change that you're proposing serious enough and radical enough to counteract all of the above? I think one of the reasons everybody's come together to change the governance structure, um, because it would have been really easy for people to sit on, on the status quo and, and just continue um, that, that tripart decision making where the BHA was asked to, to often be the referee. Um, the, the reason we've got people to come together is because um, we have got that burning platform. And I think people agree that the warning lights are flashing and that nobody wants to to sleepwalk in, into that situation for the sport. Um, so um, the, the very fact that people from uh, across the whole breadth of the sport, be they trainers, um, those representing the stable staff, our owners, um, which are, are hugely important, the racecourses, the breeders, this everybody has agreed that we need to be able to take the shackles off to allow us to do something more radical and that the old governance structure simply wouldn't allow that. So it has been noted by many that the makeup of the committees that will sit under the board level and will formulate policy to be rubber stamped and ratified at board level are made up, broadly speaking, of the same faces, many of whom are the same white middle-aged men that we've had running the sport for an awful long time. Um, how are you going to lead them and, and say, no, this is the way that the sport is going to move forward? I think what's really important and what underpins um, a lot of this, Nick, you know, because to the normal punter, you can imagine them sort of shrugging their shoulders and saying, so what, what's this going to, to mean for me? Um, what's really yeah. important that this underpins this is that it comes with agreement on sharing data. And that allows us to make evidence-based decisions. So, um, so we can actually look at what's happening. So, the number of horses that's go that are going overseas, um, that you know, their rating. How is that money being recycled from the sale? So, you know, let's try and really dig underneath to see um, the evidence uh, and make recommendations based on that. So, leading them 
um, with the right evidence um, and the BHA having that available to it, um, it is a, a, a good first step. How, um, how, much, how much bookmaker cooperation do you re do you require to feed into those the, those data streams? You need to know how much money is being bet on each race and what races are appealing to punters, what gaps between races are appealing really get people going and how the how the industry is being best funded by the by the betting industry it's essential nick because we we all know um a, a vast proportion of the revenue that underpins our sport comes from um the not the normal man and woman who are betting on horse racing um and so without that data um and working really closely with the bookmakers piloting things, finding out what would happen if we did things differently. And that liaison, that really close liaison with them has already started. And um, the race planning team at the BHA, uh, we've drafted in some um, additional talent um, from the bookmaking industry to support us as we um, progress this work on, on the industry strategy. But Can you, can you tell us who, who's the additional talent, Julie? Um, uh, Paddy Desmond from um, X of Flutter. Um, is working to support us. Um, but also we are getting people from all of the major um, um, betting operators together once a month um, from now on to, to really guide the work that we're doing. Um, not just you know slavishly, because we're also an elite sport and it, um, we want to see the best horses competing against the best horses. And, and that may not be um, the best betting product sometimes, but we... Um, we, in terms of maximising our revenues, um, then it's absolutely essential that we work closely with them, and also, um, you know, hear the voice of the better, that you know, the 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 punter who's um, about the way we present our sport in the future. So you will get some representation from punting bodies within these committees, within these policy formulating committees. So at the moment, the committees are made; they're representative committees, so they are made up of. Um, you know the, the the representative bodies across the sport, but of course you then need to have um, meetings to to understand and get that representation. That that doesn't mean mean that they need to be sat on the committee. Um, and at the moment, what we're doing is is, is simply sort of talking to them and making sure that we're getting the right views and the right data okay. coming. What what's really important, Nick, is this is new. Um, and we need to to walk before we run. And in, but we've always said this is an iterative process. And and as the um, structure develops and we see some successes, that we can we can continue to evolve. So we've we've not said that um, you know we won't have, for example, a representative of the punter on any of those committees. It's just I think it's in its infancy, and we need to show ourselves that this can work. Julia, just one last thing. It, it has been noted by several people this week, though it was explicitly stated by Will Walsh on the conference call that we were on, you know, that the ownership of the BHA is between the racecourses and, and, and the horsemen. I mean, it might just be worth clarifying because you know, one or two people have, have looked on Company's House and have seen that the Racecourse Association is an owner of the BHA. Yeah, who, who owns the British Horse Racing Authority? So our shareholders are the racecourses and the participants. So 50% of our shareholders are the racecourses and 50% are the participants made up of the owners, the breeders, the licensed personnel. Um, and so um, the, the licensed personnel represents the jockeys, the trainers um, and also the stable staff. Um, and 
they empower the BHA through this governance structure and through its board to get on and run the sport. Um, and like any company, the shareholders, um, you know, the nuclear option, I suppose, is the shareholders can intervene. Um, but things would have to be going pretty badly for that to happen. Welcome back. Our thanks to Shark Hanlon. Don't forget, a little bit later on, around about 10.35, Kia Jurabchin will be joining me, the Supreme of Ammo Racing, who've become such a significant force in racing, not just here, but across the globe. But Dave and Megan and I are delighted to be joined by Kevin Stott, who has moved his tack down south and is going at quite a rate and could be a contender next year for championship honours if things keep going in the same direction. That, of course, will please his agent, who also happens to be his partner, or happen, also happens to be uh, <laughs> Megan Nichols, who is, uh, who is on my right. So it's a, it's a virtuous circle, Kevin, and it, it seems to be, on the evidence of the last few weeks, that you've made the right, the right move. Yeah, I mean... <laughs> It was one of these things, um, you know, we, we wanted to try something a little bit different. Um, and, you know, when Meg took over as my agent, um, things start kind of picking up a little bit. Um, you know, and, and luckily enough, we, we got on a good few horses that, that was winning to, to start with that um, kind of kicked it off a little bit, if you know what I mean. Now, you guys have been together a little while. You've been living together for a while. The idea of one of you being the other one's agent, w was that always going to be a good idea? <laughs> uh, probably not, but like, it's, it's been working really well since she's obviously took over. Um, Megan's obviously quite good at it. She is, she's very good at it. Um, you know, she, she puts everything in um, when it comes to work. You know, she's got something in her head that she wants to do. She, she's going to do it 100%, and uh, she, has, she has done so um, so far, and, you know, she, it's, she obviously got me a lot of rides and, and a, lot, uh, a lot of winners. So whose idea was this? I would well, mine, let's be honest. I'm the one who probably talks most, and I'm the one who's quite sort of strong with my, if I have an idea, I'll go with it. Mm -hmm. And I sort of said to Kevin a few times about it, but it never really was right time because I was still riding and everything. So when I kind of gave up riding, we discussed it in more depth, sort of a bit more on a serious level. And, um, you know, it got to, Kev just thought, like we discussed trying something new so um and i if i do something i like to feel like i'm gonna do it properly and i've tried my best and it's kind of been working well and i think a lot of people like you said oh that won't work because you know you're you're in a relationship but kev just doesn't get involved if i have to ask him about certain horses i can but he just leaves it to me which i think is why it works the interesting thing for me is that normally speaking you would think you might get more opportunities in the north of England because you would be a, a bigger fish, whereas in the south it might be that little bit more competitive for the, for the very best rides. But you seem to have confounded that. Did you see the landscape looking a little bit different? Yeah, I guess so. I think more than anything is relevant of being with Kevin. I think he's a very talented jockey and I wanted to see him getting more opportunities. And don't get me wrong, he's done incredibly well and he's had... A group one winner for Kevin Ryan and won the Air Gold Cup and mm. amongst other trainers and you'll never be able to take that away from him but his winners on a sort of regular basis whether it's at Musselburgh or Catrick or wherever it might be weren't getting the recognition which is frustrating and I think that's such a shame one for Northern Racing because I don't think it gets the recognition that the South does but two it can 
sort of hinder you a little bit and maybe stop progression. And, you know, there's a lot of good northern jockeys who probably struggle to get the rides in the better races. Danny Tudhope is one who, who does, but I think that probably helps with the ownership partnership that he has. But, for example, I'll, I'll choose another one, let's say Paul Morenon, who's had an amazing year, finished second or third in the championship, but he was never riding in the, or rarely riding in the yeah. top-level races, and I think that's a shame. So, for me, I wanted to get Kev's recognition more in in the south to try and get those opportunities so to spread the wings a bit and and build up a broader network of of trainers who have a, a higher proportion of, of of quality horses yeah basically um obviously like riding up north has been absolutely brilliant you know i've had a lot of support from a lot of owners and a lot of trainers up there um and without them i wouldn't be here right now um you know but like megan was saying it is just the the recognition of of trying to get on you know, the better horse in a spare, let's say, as, as a spare ride in, in a better race, um, then, you know, you, you don't really get the recognition um, up north as much as you would if you were riding um, winners on a daily basis down south, let's say. Because um, these spare rides that come up in, in, in good races, let's say, you know, they want the best available jockey. And, like, a lot of owners or trainers would kind of look, when it comes to mm. to choosing a jockey than the north you know um which is a shame because there's some absolute brilliant riders up north you know um some very good jockeys up there it's just you just don't get the unfortunately don't get the recognition as as you did if you were riding winners on a daily basis down south you know i'm i'm feeling i'm feeling people reaching for the for the keyboard to make a kind of prescient remark about the north south divide and maybe it's Maybe it's our fault, Dave, for, for not paying as much attention to racing in certain parts of the country. I don't, I, I'm only putting it out there. It possibly is. Um, to what extent would um, a move, it, with regard to a push for the jockey's title, what sort of time frame would you have on that? Obviously, I mean, you, you know, Machine Murphy's going to come back, Will Buick's always going to be strong. But I did a Chelmsford City shift, you always get the glamour gigs. And. <laughs> um, you had a treble a couple of weeks ago. You had one for Charlie Hills, one for George Bowie, one for another trainer who's you know. So you, you're you're broadening that that client base pyramid, aren't you? Which is which is essential if you're going to push for a uh, a jockey's title. Yeah, I think one one sort of step at a time. Obviously, at the moment we're concentrating on the all weather, and I'm doing my best to you know get as many new contacts as possible, but also try and find the best rides in the races that we can. Um, that naturally doesn't always happen. And, and you know, you you can only try to find the best ride, but sometimes the horses underperform or, or whatever. Um, but also then you're b building more contacts. And thankfully, Kevin's had, you know, a bit of luck recently. He's been riding so well and that always helps. But, the you know, the sort of turf championship, I mean, that's miles away. That's to think about when we get there. Right. But there, at this stage, there have been unlikelier winners of the Jockeys' Championship than at this stage of, of his career, Kevin Stott. Now, now, Kevin, how long have you been thinking, well, I could be champion jockey and I want to go for it? Is that something that's... I mean, I think it's obviously something every jockey dreams of uh, or, or would like to achieve at some stage, you know what I mean? Um, it's not something that I've thought of recently because I've kind of realised that it was probably not going to happen at any stage um you know i was i was just happy riding winners and and trying to get on on good horses you know um 
But like, listen, at, at Jockeys Championship, it's probably miles away still. Um, you know, we're taking one day at a time, and like we're we're trying to do our best now and mm -hmm. on the all weather. Um, and you know, it, it might just be a little stepping stone forward to something that could maybe be a champions jockeys championship. You know what I mean? But like, I, I'm not really, I'm not thinking that far ahead at all. Um, I'm just wanting to get myself kind of established um, as as a freelance jockey and like try to get on the best horses, you know, in, in, in the races that we can ride in and, and, and ride as many winners as possible. I think ultimately every day you're trying to ride winners, you're trying to look for winners. So, you know, you say you're going for the jockeys championship, but that kind of just happens, you know, if you're on the right horses and the form, you know, good form continues. We're not going riding in July and thinking, oh, we'll, we'll try and ride 550 to one shots you're always trying to ride and find the winners so then if it happens and you're going the right way obviously you can try and push for it as much as you like but my job is to try and get kevin as many good rides as possible and it, that will continue to happen whether it's november or july or, or whenever so you know i don't think you can necessarily say oh yeah we're going for the championship because you're always trying to find winners mm. and um staying off twitter is that important um, Kev's come off Twitter, but I have—I um, am on Twitter. Um, yeah, probably. Yeah. Back on Twitter. Elon uh, Musk might do away with it in the next couple of weeks. Yes. <laughs> yeah, hopefully. I haven't paid for a blue tick, so I think I'm—you know—I'm doing all right. A few people, I think, have paid for one. So. Yeah, I, I didn't pay for one. It's, but Twitter is so annoying because there's always—you know—there's always you've always ridden it wrong, or you know, my voice is annoying, or whatever there is. There's always someone who doesn't like you for something. But ultimately, you just got to ignore it, like whatever. Everyone's entitled to their own opinion. And if it doesn't affect your work or your life, then it doesn't really bother me anymore. In terms of your work and your life, are you in, are you in the best possible place now, do you think? Has this been a, has this been a good move? I, I believe so. Um, you know, I think we're, we're doing the right thing. Um, you know, things, like I said, been, been going great the last you know, couple of months, don't get me wrong. Um, but yeah. We're, <laughs> We're trying something different. We're trying something new, and um, you know, I'm I'm excited to see what happens. Um, you know, this is only the start, so like, yeah, who who knows what where we can go, kind of thing, you know. Uh, today is the day that uh, marks the beginning of the World Cup. One man who will have keen eyes on that, as he does on pretty much everything in horse racing now, is someone who has been. Uh, a real force in every discipline he has turned his attentions to, whether it's been trading, stockbroking, the world of football across three continents, where many would describe him as a great success story and many would describe him equally as something of a, of a disruptor, someone who's always liked to do things a little bit differently. And that might just be the case with what he's now intending to do in horse racing and has done as an owner for the last few years. He is Ammo Racing's Keir Jarabchin. Keir. Good morning. Hi, good morning. How are you? Is that a fair description? A disruptor? <laughs> someone who likes to ruffle a few feathers? Someone who likes to do oh. things a bit differently? I just think, you know, um, throughout this, my sporting career, I always like to push the boat out and make sure that, you know, what's fair, what we think is fair and, and, and just and how the sporters should evolve can actually get across. I think there's too many times in 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 life that people just kind of accept the way things are and just kind of dawdle on and say, "Well, 
that didn't work for me because it didn't work for me. Um, and I don't agree with that. Are you someone who has always had a, a way of finding different ways of making money? Is it about different ways of, of making money, bringing different revenue streams to the businesses that you, that you apply yourself to? Well, I think, you know, it's important. Like, when we started in football, um, we recognized in South America that there is a very big opportunity for commercial revenues that are not being, you know, sort of described. So we removed all the sponsorships from all the shirts, everything. We went on a blank shirt. And when we did that, it created a big thing. Well, hang on a minute, Pepsi was on this shirt, and all of a sudden you guys have gone off. And now the sponsorships are in line with Europe. You know, the, the you know they went from $200,000 a year on sponsorship for shirts to $16 million. Um, and the growth, the growth has been very, very substantial in South America. And the same thing happened, I think, with when we came to Europe. You know, a lot of the clubs in England um, were not being able to compete at the very top level, and we tried to do something which was slightly different, which is create a platform where you allow clubs financing to um, bring in players and and basically be able to compete at that level. And so that was very different to what people had done originally, right? You wake up in the morning, you buy a player, and that's what you can afford, and that's the end of it. Um, and that's what we tried to change. And I think racing is probably pretty similar. I think, did you think <coughs> at one point in, in the football world that you were, you, were, you were perceived as being on the wrong side of the battle for the sport's soul, if you like? If you did things commercially a bit differently, that you were removing the game from its sort of natural heart and what, what the supporters thought it should be. Does that make sense to you? Yeah, I think the way that the thing we, is... Were you conscious of that? No, I think the thing is that, you know, also, we came in and we were a little bit too quick. So maybe if we'd done it a little bit slower, it would have been, it would have been more effective uh, at the start, although it was very effective totally. But I don't can think, you do anything slowly? But I don't think so because I think you know, you know. For example, West Ham managed to get two players that were, f you know, fantastic. Now, what happened afterwards was not the fault of what happened through the ownership of the players, but through you know a CEO making a mistake, or or Man United then benefited from that, and 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 Liverpool then benefited from that mm -hmm. kind of theory, and. Then a lot, a lot more people started to do it, and um, you know now you can see, you know, players across the world, their numbers have gone tremendously higher. The sport has grown immensely. So players can be commodities. People, do you think you, do you feel the sport? Not players can be commodities, but you can create, you can allow smaller clubs to have financing right. that allows them to compete at a bigger level. It's completely different. It's you know, structure. You know, it wasn't the player that was the commodity. You were giving a smaller club the ability to have a much bigger player at a lower financial rate, you know, and that's that was the key. And I think from that point on, what then happened is, you know, the football has grown so much. You know, Chelsea being sold for 2.5 billion plus, you know, 2 billion in... in um, commitments for the future puts the valuations of all these other clubs tremendously higher. Liverpool is now reportedly 
although I have yet to see in the deck, but reportedly up for sale. Um, that will be a staggering price compared to what they entered into. But we are still far, far away because if you look at the American sports, you know, into Miami, um, David Beckham's uh, team traded at $550 million a month ago, two months ago. Um, and then if you look at the NBA and NFL teams, you know, NFL teams are trading at $6.5 billion, $7 billion, and they don't have half the audience that we have in terms of football worldwide. And in England, we have arguably the best league in the world, the strongest league in the world. And we are far from reaching our so you still potential. Feel it's not, you still feel, even at the, even at the elite <coughs> level, that it's not reaching its commercial potential, even though we in England, in other sports, particularly horse racing, believe rightly, I think, that we are completely dwarfed and, and swamped by football's dominance. Well, I mean, you know, you just have to just have a look at, you know, the 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 reality of it, right? So you fly out to China, Thailand, Singapore, uh, uh, if you go to Abu Dhabi, Dubai, wherever you go, you know, Bahrain, wherever all those countries you go, you will always find a Premier League shirt on the back of the kids running around playing football on the streets, in the parks, in the schools, um, and even in the even in the stadiums. You know, worldwide, we have now, today, the World, Cups, World Cup starts. Politics aside, from a sportive point of view, it is the biggest sporting event that there is. And we, in England, as a Premier League team, are exposed to, you know, almost, you know, 100-plus 100 100 countries worldwide. I don't know the exact statistical figure of that. Um, and... Yet we haven't reached a number for a Premier League football club, which an NFL team would trade for today. So an NFL team such as like the Dallas Cowboys, if you tried to buy them today, I think you would probably trade in excess of six, six point five billion. I read, and Washington Commanders now is demanding something around you know three to five billion. But yet, you know, what is there? market capacity in terms of the world, yet commercially they are so much bigger because from a commercial standpoint, the Americans do it so much better. And um, they have a great in-depth side to that, even from a racing point of view. You know, we race a maiden for 5,000, they race a maiden for 100,000. You know, it's just completely a different scale. So... I think we have a lot of growth to do. Let's talk about, about racing. I want to talk about your own ownership interests, first of all. You came in with the, the Breeders' Cup cap, Persian Force, who ran a, a very good race this year, um, and he's had a great season. Now, he's retired. You've retired him. Is that right? Yeah. So we decided this week that we will retire him to stud. And there will be a lot of people watching this program who will be saying, not another one. You can't retire two-year-olds to stud. This is against the very fabric of the game. He could be a good horse next year. What is this telling us about the breed? What's going through your mind? Well, Persian's done an incredible job, to be honest. Um, you know, he's followed the footsteps of his father. Mema. He's done everything that Mehmas has done. Arguably, according to Richard Hannan, who trained both, um, he's a better-looking version of his father. So, um, and he's got a better pedigree. And he has started in March 
running everything from almost every group one there was coming second in most of them but still giving you know he's never had a bad run he's followed the footsteps of his dad from start to finish and his father retired at uh, as a two-year-old the end of his two-year-old career and has had a fantastic career as a stud in stud as a stallion and his father will stand today at 60,000 euros and so looking at that and thinking well you know he can definitely follow the footsteps of his father if not better because you're always better than because your son is always better than you right so that's that's that, that's the way you're thinking you know so i can see it from a commercial angle where's he going to stand well i think from a commercial angle that's it's very important because i think we will stand him at a very reasonable figure um and you've got a bidding war going on at the moment yeah and w and we will stand him at a very reasonable figure because i think you know for me one of the things about the sport that is very important is you know i think racing is very much well before we entered was very much a thing that you know very wealthy people owned racehorses and stallions and you know the less wealthier people would have a share in a horse or a percentage or mm. have you know 5% of something or whatever and i think that is something that was that is that needs to change because i think racing is for the mass for the public and i think you know we need to do better to bring in more people into racing i'm definitely trying i'm i'm bringing i'm trying to bring in although you know they are wealthier wealthy individuals but i'm definitely trying to bring in more football related people in order to give the sport more uh, exposure but when you went into this and built up a string of probably north of 100 horses um you are a a wealthy man who went out and bought a ton of racehorses to run for you for your for your ammo racing that was your that was your ambition at that point has that ambition changed then are you saying yeah i don't you know i work for a living i'm not i don't have a you know i'm not a guy that you know um is fighting you know owns a country or something of that nature or 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 a group of 5 billionaires we don't have that kind of a support so i have to go to work every day to create that but to make sure that this this, this space wealth. i mean but and you're someone who's not frightened of saying i want to make a lot of money and i'm going to find interesting and innovative ways of doing it even if it kind of nudges at the margins and gets yeah. a few backs up along but the way we, we didn't start racing for the money we started racing from a passion i started back in 2003 and i got stung very badly by um a trainer and a in england, um, in england and a advisor to a trainer at the time last occasion um no he wasn't a bloodstock agent an ex-jockey and that sting you know was was quite was quite painful for me at that time back in 2003 yeah. um it was to the extent of around 40,000 and it's probably the only person in racing that i have any animosity towards until today would be that 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 particular person because i think they knew what they were doing and that gave me a different type of drive it gave me a drive to say listen you know this kind of people you know be it he's a very good trainer this kind of people should not do that to the normal person and so i was very lucky i i then fell in the laps of michael bell and david simcock and um 
who are wonderful trainers and great people, and they showed me a different side to racing. And uh, since then, uh, this we've is, see, grown. This is, this is fascinating to me because you really like Michael Bell, don't you? Oh yeah, as a human yeah, being, yeah, yeah, yeah. and you really like David Simcard. Yeah, and you think they're both good trainers. Yeah. Why haven't you got all your horses with them? Why have you? Why did you? Then I do. Start I have horses with them, but I think you know, the my, Michael's relationship with us is very, very close, mm -hmm. um, and David's too. I respect them, and they really they help me start off something because they showed me a completely different side. Yeah, they showed me how you know you can be a good person, good trainer, help. Michael gave me a horse when I was you know, um, quite down with the game. And, you know, I do have horses with them. I respect them very highly. But I've also tried to evolve and have race horses with younger trainers and give them a chance. Because in my sport, I'm always promoting young players. And I'm always trying to convince the managers and the owners to give the younger players a chance to come up and evolve. Why? What is it? What, what's what's informing that? What's what's going through your head? Going through my head yeah, in terms well, of what, what giving thinking? young people yeah, a chance. What's, what's the? So well, I think, you know, I think in in this particular sport, um, you know, it's very difficult for young trainers to get a to get a start. Young trainers, young jockeys, very difficult to get a mm -hmm. to get a start. Um, you were interviewing Kevin Stott. He's done a he's done great. But in fairness, you know, his exposure was very limited. You know, we didn't know who he was until he started writing for us. Mm -hmm. um, and now you see trainers like George Bowie, Alice Haynes, um, Dave Lochnan, although I wouldn't say he's that young, as, as young as the, the other two. <laughs> he is still very young. Um, and, you know, they've done great jobs for me. And... They didn't really have a yard at the time to compete at that level. Yeah. And, you know, Dave won our first ever Group 2 with Go Bears. Alice has done a fantastic job this year with Lady Hollywood and various others. Um, and George did a great job last year in this year for us. But then you, you took your horse from Ireland, your, your good horse, Crypto Force, and you brought him to... The young up and coming John Gosden. And Teddy. Ah, oh, yeah, okay. You got <laughs> uh, I see what you did there. But, but you get where I'm coming from. I mean, I, I always get the feeling with you that you're, you're just always, you're always just looking for something different, something else, something. You're always, you're always thinking about who the next person to use is, who the next person to use is, who the next. And that's fine, but it doesn't necessarily sit comfortably with the way people think it should be done and has been done. Do you quite enjoy that? Do you quite enjoy, going back to my previous point, throwing all the balls up in the air a little bit? Well, I think I'm slightly different to most of the bigger owners because I have to work for a living and and um, I have to make this... But you have to make, make the enterprise work. work for, for Eventually I have yeah. to make the enterprise work, yeah. right? And for me to do that, you know, you have to realise, you know, we go out there and we buy the horse mm -hmm. so we pay the initial fee for the horse we're paying monthly training fees and if something is not working you've got to change it up why not be able to change it up that doesn't mean that you are you don't like the way the guy is training uh -huh. or you don't like the person or anything but you know sometimes maybe because of my um 
my real job and my real passion of football. Mm -hmm. um, I think maybe sometimes, you know, you see a player move to a club and he's extremely successful and another player moves to a club and doesn't do well and you think, oh, he didn't suit that environment. Got it. I have trainers now in America who, you know, yesterday night, someone, one of them sent me a message said, who has five horses with me and said, okay, this particular horse, you might be better off moving her to Miami or to, or to Kentucky where their turf is, is better than where we are right now. I mean, that's the kind of relationship I'd like to have with them.